you know, for all of you. So <laughs> Anna's just a lot more animated than we are. So, <laughs> so thank you, Anna. Well, I'd like to start by introducing some new members of our church. And so uh, here at OCC, we have a formal membership process um, that involves uh, a class, a long, lengthy class where you um, learn a lot about our church, and, uh, and then you have a chance to respond to that if you choose. And so um, in the Bible, there is, it doesn't, um, you know, there's not one verse that says you need to be a church member, you know, that's not a, a Bible verse, but there's really an implication that Christians were connected and contributing members of local churches. The, the letters in the New Testament were written to local church members. And so there really is a strong implication. And so um, we have church membership for that very reason. So I want to take a moment just to recognize and affirm these new members. And as I call your name, um, would you stand and remain standing so we can cheer for you? So we have Ryan Benham, Tasha Orshoff, Wes Brown, Michelle Brown, Daniel uh-oh, Savo Linen. Thank you, Daniel. John Armstrong, Rachel Armstrong, and Maria Montejano Ruiz. If you would all stand. Where's Maria? It's okay. She's in the... We'll announce her again. So for all of you, before you sit, I'd like to just uh, read a verse of out of book of Philippians, this is what Paul said to the church in Philippi. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a strong partnership that Paul had with the churches that he planted. And, um, and there's a partnership, there's a sense of partnership that, that ought to be in place within a church um, community. And so this commitment that you've made is very, very important to us. It's not just something we do just for the sake of, oh, we have more members. It really is something that means a lot um, because it helps us to know, um, you know, it helps us to know what we can accomplish in any given year, in any, any given moment. And so we, we just want to encourage you in your decision to become members. I really want to encourage you in your growth. This scripture says, you know, that God is carrying out a work in you and that he's going to continue to carry that out to a point of completion. And so you're at a certain point. God wants you to continue to grow. And so I, I, want, to, I want to help with that as, as your pastor. And then also we as a church want to help that as well. And so thank you for your commitment. We just, uh, again, just encouraged by your commitment. Thank you. Perfect segue into the message because um, today we're kind of looking at a chapter that deals with organization. And um, some of you may be organizers and some of you could care less about organization. Who are the I could care less about organization people? Just go ahead and give you permission right now to fall asleep if you'd like. But um, no, really what happened was in the story of Nehemiah, we've been looking at um, Nehemiah led God's people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And the wall was completed. There was lots of opposition. There was lots of threats on the outside from within. All these different things we've been looking at. Uh, it was a, there was all sorts of aggression from um, opposing people who had occupied that, ser- that very same land and had been enemies from years before. 
Well, God allowed them the resources to rebuild a wall. And so Jerusalem at this point now that we're looking at is now once again a fortified city after about 150 years. Okay? God's people were allowed to come back and to rebuild their lives. And so what Nehemiah does in these three chapters that we're going to really just blow through, we're going to look at you know, what does it mean to reorganize and how does that help us refocus? Um, so he set some things into place that help them refocus their attention towards the right kinds of things. And as I study this book, what keeps jumping out at me is, wow, this is so much like a local church. This is so much about how a church is to function. And so I'm going to draw some principles again about how, how we can apply this as a local church. So the first thing, and just so you know, I woke up at 6 a.m. with this real sense of dread going, oh, there's way too much to cover in one message. So we're not going to cover everything that, um, that you have in your outline. So if you are a a person who needs to have all the blanks filled in, and we're you know almost done and we have very few filled in, don't worry. I'll help you out at the very end, and I'll give you the blanks, and then you can go and study the rest on your own. So, so let's look at this. The first thing is this. Once the wall was completed, um, leadership was appointed. Nehemiah appointed some assistants who would lead. And look at Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says, After the wall had been rebuilt, And I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were all appointed. Then I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do. I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot, while the gatekeepers are still on duty. Have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some at their posts and some near their own houses. So Nehemiah goes and he appoints leaders. He puts a couple men in charge, one in charge of Jerusalem as a city, and then he puts Hananiah in charge of the citadel, the fortress, the palace in a sense. And, you know, and then they were to appoint kind of sub-leaders to, to lead out in some different um, areas so that you know, this community that was back in town could function, so they could operate. Anytime you try to get something working, leadership um, is a big part of seeing things function, th- seeing things operated. And um, I, I've worked in some places where leaders were hired based on education, you know, based on past experience, you know, maybe sales. Um, but character was never really the key issue of leadership. I don't know if this has anything to do with why I'm ringing, but... Um, but it's interesting. Nehemiah, he puts people in charge who had proven character. Proven character. One was his brother, Hanani. And that, that was a guy that came up in chapter 1 and warned um, Nehemiah that the wall was not being rebuilt. And so if you remember from the very beginning, he was the one that delivered the bad news to Nehemiah when he was out serving a foreign king. And so he puts his brother, Hanani, in charge of Jerusalem. And he knew his brother. He could vouch for his brother's character because, you know, if you, if you have family members, you know, you have maybe some good brothers and good sisters. Maybe you have that one bad egg in your family. But, um, you know, he knew Hanani could be trusted with this responsibility. Then he appoints another guy named Hananiah. Scripture says this about him. It says, he was a man of integrity who feared God more than most men do. And I really want to focus in on this, these two words. The first one he was a man of integrity. That word, the Hebrew word is emeth. What it means is he's faithful or reliable. In other words, he is, he is true to the core. 
what you see is, is who he is on the, you know, the outside matches the inside. You can count. He's not a faker. He's really who he says he is. So he, he, he's this man that people, they can trust his reputation. He also says he feared God, Hananiah feared God more than most men do. Now again, this is the guy that's to be responsible for the palace. That's an important part, obviously. You want to protect the palace. To fear God more than most, that word really means to take God so seriously that you obey Him. It doesn't mean you're afraid of Him and you run away like He's the boogeyman. What it means is you, you take Him seriously enough that you don't mess around with what He says. You believe that there's real life results for obedience. There's also consequences for disobedience. And so Hananiah was a man who feared God most, or more than most men do. And... Um, this really reminds me of, of some leaders that I've met. One leader is, is my mentor, Randy Lanthrop. He's, he's not a faker. One of the things I appreciate about Randy is he's also not a showboater. Um, he, he's been a pastor for 22 years. He spoke here in the summertime, but he, he helped us start this church. His church you know, believed in what we were doing, and they got behind us and helped start this church. But um, he's a different kind of pastor. One of the things I recognized about him when I first met him was that he was very different than a lot of the other guys that I'd met. One, he wasn't very showy. He didn't... Um, I, I had met a lot of pastors that were just... Sometimes it seemed like they were kind of putting on a show, and so you'd walk up to them and they How you doing, brother? It's good to see you. And, it's, and they're very animated and very expressive in what... And you're just like, does he talk to his kids like that? Or is it, you know... <laughs> you know How are you doing, son? I mean, maybe he does, but... I had just begun to get used to this persona of a pastor who was very animated and, and just loud and very, you know, gregarious. And But you kind of wonder, is this guy for real? Well, with Randy, it wasn't like that. It was very much, how are you doing? My name's Randy. You know, nice to meet you. But talk about a steady guy through the years. I've known him for over 10 years now and just a steady guy, you know. And he... Uh, he made some promises to me early on when we plugged into this church as far as training me. And it wasn't this big, no fireworks went off as far as what he promised as far as his training. But he, he was true to his word. He said, if you stay here and make an investment here, I'll invest in you and help you get ready to plant a church someday. And, and he was just, he was faithful. He was reliable what he said. He still is. And he just has tremendous character. Also, he fears God more than most men do. I would say that of him. That, um, you know, over time, pastors... Um, the more successful you become as a pastor, you're in the spotlight all the time. Uh, very easy to allow pride to creep in. Pride is what took Satan down. You know, pastors fall because of this whole area. They're in the spotlight, and, and it, because of that, pride creeps in. Well, what I'd seen in his life is that as he walked on with God, the fear of God really grew more and more in him to the point where he, he takes God even more seriously the older he gets. He wants to be more careful with his decisions, more careful with his obedience. And just some tremendous things there. This is a rare quality in a spiritual leader. Nehemiah appointed leaders um, that had some sort of a, a peacekeeping duty. These, these men were, were guards in a sense. And they were also like c- commanders. Um, in the Bible, there, you know, there's not really a division separating sacred duties from secular duties. You know, here in our day and age, we have the the sacred, you know, the priests, the pastors, and then we have everybody else. Well, in the Scripture, oftentimes the sacred duties were given to people who had secular backgrounds, secular functions. And the 
the the issue was not so much, um, you know, their skill set, but their character. Their character. And that's what Nehemiah appointed these men for. It was because they had proven character. Today, this is still the case. The key qualification for spiritual leadership today is, is proven character. What I want to do is flip to the New Testament and look at what Paul says about how do you qualify spiritual leaders because I think this is very important for us as a church to understand the dynamics that, that, we, that we need to be working with and keeping an eye on. Um, so I'm going to flip to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to use Cody as a, as a he's going to come up here and help me with a uh, little illustration here. So, and I need all of you to be involved in this as well. So you have, to, you have to engage your mind and think about what I'm saying at this point. Okay, from here on out, you've got to think about the these questions I'm going to ask you, okay? There's three cups up here. One is a C, one is a K, one is an S. And C stands for character, one stands for knowledge, and one for skill. I'm going to read a list of spiritual qualifications for those in spiritual leadership, and I want you to tell me if it's a character issue, if it's a knowledge issue, or a skill issue, okay? Simple enough? Okay, so we're going to look at these things. This is what Paul says. says, here's a trustworthy saying, if anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, that word overseer, episcopus, it means to watch over. The one who watches over to make sure everything is okay. And so the qualifications for an overseer are these. It says he desires a noble task. The overseer must be above reproach. That's the first thing. Above reproach, it means to be blameless. Literally, literally means he cannot be laid hold of. Nothing can... Nothing can snatch him and take him down. Nothing can destroy him. So is that a character issue, a knowledge issue, or a skill issue? It's a character issue. Okay, we're going to pour a little bit in the character cup. And there's about 20 of these, so just so you have... (laughs) You might want to pour a little back. (laughs) All right, let's move to the next one. The next one is uh, the husband of but one wife. Literally, this means a one-woman man. Okay? Okay, this means he's faithful to his wife. And also as a pattern, he's striving to be faithful to her in his mind, in the way he uses his... You know, he's, he's, he's a one-woman man. Is that a character issue? Is that a knowledge issue? Or is that a skill issue? Primarily, it's a character issue. Okay, a little bit more in the character cup. The next thing, he's, he's temperate. Temperate means this. One who holds himself in. Or he restrains himself. He's sober in a sense. He, he's able to restrain his habits. He's able to restrain his lifestyle. He's temperate. Is that a character issue? Is it knowledge or a skill? It's a character. Next one, self-controlled. He's self-controlled, the Scripture says, which means to be of sound mind. Letting one's mind guide the body, not just our, our desires. So is that a character, knowledge, or skill? Character. Respectable means to have one's life in order. Is that character, knowledge, or skill? Character. Hospitable. Literally, that means love of strangers. What is that? Character, knowledge, or skill? A little bit of skill, maybe. Okay, give a little to the skill, a little to the character. Some of these do have a little bit of both. Next one. Not given to drunkenness. Um, which would impair his ability to minister at any given moment is the, is the issue. He needs to be sober-minded, able to minister at any given moment. Is that character, knowledge, or skill? Character and skill? 
All of them. Okay, give a little bit. Yeah, you're smart not to, not you know. <clears throat> the issue is drunkenness, okay, because it's impairing ability to do ministry, impairing the ability to respond and react and to engage your mind. Um, next one, not violent but gentle. This means he's not ready to snap. He has a long fuse. What is that? Character and skill. Okay. That is certainly a skill. Okay, and then it says over, it says he's not quarrelsome. Basically, he's not a brawler. <clears throat> is that a character, knowledge, or a skill? Character. It's also a skill, you know, <laughs> to control. You know, it's a, it's a learned thing as well to control uh, temper. Again, not a lover of money. Um, he's meaning he's not always eager to have more. Is that a character issue, knowledge, or skill? Character. Okay, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Character. Skill. Okay. He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. The issue here is pride. So, is that character issue, knowledge, or skill? Okay, character. Also, he must have a good reputation with others so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. What about that? Okay. Then you flip over to Titus. There's some, there's some other ones, and I just want to find the ones that we haven't mentioned. It says in here, just to repeat, it says in Titus, he must be blameless. We don't have to, to address that. Husband of but one wife, children who are believing, not open to the charge, being wild and disobedient. Since his overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. He must be hospitable again. He must be one who loves what is good. What is that? Character. Character issue. <clears throat> I lost my place. Who is self-controlled? We did that upright. That's a, another issue. Upright. Character issue. Holy and disciplined. Character and skill. <clears throat> he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it, as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who repute it or who, who oppose it. That's knowledge, yeah. There's probably also some skill in there. Okay, so let's see where we're at. Now I want you to look at the cups. Oftentimes when we, we think about hiring, you know, people in a business, you know, again, you think experience, you think education, you think sales, you, maybe even charisma, you know, how attractive they are. But when it comes to, to spiritual leadership, the issue primarily is character and then what? And then skill and then what? Knowledge. It's interesting thing to look at because um, oftentimes when you, when you think about um, the role of a pastor or a spiritual leader, you're thinking, oh, he's the guy that's, that's you know, up there talking about what God's Word has to say. And so it's very easy to, in, to flip this around and to think it's all about how much that person knows. You qualify yourself for spiritual ministry by knowledge is what it would seem like because of the duty you perform publicly. But the issue in the Scripture is character. The issue for Nehemiah, again, it was character. And there wasn't this division of the sacred duty and the secular duty. It was kind of seen as one of the same. Some of you, you carry, you can, you can be seated, Cody. Thanks for the tea. Appreciate that. 
this is a very, very important thing. I think through the years I've always thought about this issue as it comes to uh, just training and, and for myself and also for training other people. Primarily, when you raise up a person in ministry, it's because they've proven their character. This has to do with group leadership. This has to do with team leadership. This has to do with pastors, elders. And so, but the issue isn't how much you know. Now, th- that certainly is an important part of it for, for the person who's, who's preaching and teaching. Um, but it's not the most important issue. And I, I want to illustrate that to you. So that's one of the things is proven character. The next thing about the leadership that was appointed is leadership, our leaders are carefully selected. Nehemiah, he, he was intentional in his selection of his leaders. But again, leaders are carefully selected. This is what Paul says in First Timothy. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sin of others. Keep yourself pure. Um, what this means is when they would lay hands on a person, they were raising them up into ministry. They were going to pray. The elders would come together and they would raise up new people by laying their hands on them, praying for them, asking God to, to work through them to bless their ministry. And he's saying, don't raise up people into ministry in a hasty way. Be careful in who you select. Take time because character is not something you prove in a day, in a week, in a month. It's something you have to prove over time. It's demonstrated over, a, you know, in many cases, many, many years of serving. I remember when God first began to prompt in me a desire to, towards ministry. I was about 19 when I began to really get clear-headed in, in that. And, um, but it was, it was, I think, seven years before I full-time was in ministry. And the training ground for, for ministry was not seminary. The training ground was marriage, parenting, money, choices and and there was like character 101 you have to take and you know friendship 102 and relationships 103 and these are all things that that the leaders that were over me over there were paying paying attention to and and putting a lot of pressure on to make sure that i was working on things but training for ministry takes place in real life this is an issue again because as a church we're having to organize ourselves to be most effective and as we grow and as we try to reach more people, we have to keep in mind the way that God says to organize His church. Leaders also have to maintain a high level of accountability. This is another thing. High level of accountability. This is implied in those two lists that we looked at, that we filled the cups with. There's just these qualifications that are extremely important that we need to be paying attention to. But look at this verse, 1 Timothy 5, 17-20. It says, The elders... The elder, this word actually, again, doesn't just merely mean the elderly men, but to those actually who occupy the positions of spiritual maturity or leadership in the church. So, and the spiritual leaders are to be taken care of. Look at what the scripture says. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wage. Um, it's basically saying, you know, the, the the spiritual leadership, especially the one who's 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 preaching, his, you know, he's not to be. Uh, uh, he's a responsibility. His the church is the church's responsibility to take care of their spiritual leaders in this in this way. He gives this illustration. You know, you don't put a muzzle on on his ox while he's out there treading your fields. You allow him to eat the grain as he's working. 
And so he's saying, you know, your, your spiritual leaders need to be taken care of through the church. And then verse 19, a very serious part of this, of this is, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. I grew up a pastor's kid. Um, and, you know, this whole area of uh, the church supporting their pastor was, has always been something very um, dear, obviously, because I grew up in, this, in that environment. Uh, I grew up when they would discuss my father's salary in business meetings when our whole family would be present. And people would talk about, well, let's talk about Pastor Gill's raise this year. And some people would be for it, and some people would voice their opinion against it. And um, thankfully, you know, they did away with that practice after a while. But this whole area is something the church needs to be concerned about. The Scripture wouldn't talk about it if it didn't. Um, there are certain settings where these kinds of issues have to be discussed, but the church as a whole needs to be made aware of their responsibility towards their leaders. Um, as far as accusations, there's just this high level of accountability. One of the things I really appreciate about Tom Lance, our neighbor here at the Grove, is that he's extremely accountable to his, his board and to his church. He's made his church, oh, he, he's given them um, the ability to come and check on his finances personally, his bank account, checking account, savings account. He's, he's, he's just said, I, I give this to you guys. You can look at my life. You can look at my internet browsing. You can look at, you can look, look at my email. You can look at who I'm having meetings with. You can look at if I'm exercising. He's very open with his church about this stuff because he understands his accountability is to his church. This is a critical issue. Accusations in the New Testament were very common. So Paul was very, very aware of slander against church leaders. In this book, 1 Timothy, there's quite a bit talking about slander. Slander is false charges or false testimony or gossip about someone. And so when slander comes against a pastor, he says... Don't entertain an accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. This is a teaching from the Old Testament and the New Testament, which the teaching says this. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the mouth of two to three witnesses. Um, The reason is because Satan himself will plant divisive individuals in congregations, in churches, to spread slander and to begin to divide a church. Um, I've seen this happen. This happened to my father. Um, but these procedures are to be taken very seriously. Again, we talked about disloyalty and, and division last week. If you ever see that, not, the, not if, but when you see that within our congregation, when you, see, um, when you see things that are divisive in nature, when you see things not handled appropriately, you need to talk to people about it. You need to talk to leadership about that. Um, because if it's let loose and the church does nothing, it will destroy a church. My father served for 14 years in Pismo Beach, which is where I grew up. And um, near the end of his time there, um, some leaders rose up and kind of took charge of some things. And they, they slandered my dad. And they brought some false things against him, said that he was taking money. And so my dad said, well, I've done nothing wrong, but go ahead and take a look. And so... You know, investigation began. Well, these people got really um, divisive and started splitting the church. Eventually, the advice my dad was given was, you can either resign or you can stay and fight. And he, he didn't want to see the church split over the issue, so he resigned. 
Talk about one of the hardest things I've ever had to see my dad go through was, was that. He left a church that he loved, that he poured into. He loved people. He served so many people. He led many people to faith in Christ. You know, and, and he was ran out of town in a sense. And people didn't know what to do. People didn't know who, who was right. They weren't sure if they should stick up for him or not. Um, but the accusations weren't handled appropriately. One person made an accusation all alone, but over time there was division because of it. Well, a new pastor came into town, they finalized the investigation, and they cleared his name. But two, two years had gone by, and, and his you know, character was assassinated in a sense, and his reputation was damaged. The new pastor you know, did this big thing for the whole church and just said, look, we need to clear his name because of this. But that's just one example. And there's just, you know, in the, in the Scripture, the Bible is so clear about these issues because the unity of the church is important. So the leadership is critical. Um, there's high accountability on my life. I recognize as a pastor that my life is, is an open book. I have men in my life who I call frequently to check up on me in areas and, and confess to them when I've blown it in areas. I, I, but I recognize that I have to answer to God for the way that I live my life, for the things that I say. And um, I, I bring all this stuff to your attention for one reason, is because I really do sense as a church that we're... Uh, God's giving us a real opportunity to, to grow, to continue to grow, to reach more people. But that will require us to, to raise up more people who will take on more responsibility. But the test, again, is character. And the more responsibility you're given in the kingdom, the more open your life gets to others. So it's kind of a scary thing. For those that aspire to, to receive more responsibility, in the Scripture in First Timothy it says, those who want to be overseers, they desire a noble task. That's a good thing, but... With it comes all of this stuff that now you have to be willing to let people uh, probe into your life. And so, again, I bring this up because as we organize, we need to be slow, we need to be careful, um, and we need to use character as our guide. This isn't just for paid staff, but as we raise up people into volunteer staff roles, it's very important. One of the reasons why I think I woke up at 6 a.m. was because this message really contains several different areas. That's one area, so we're going to shut the door on that. And we're going to move to a second area of, of God's people were counted. Okay, Nehemiah, he appointed these leaders. He used that criteria. The second area was he started counting God's people. I'm going to quickly move through this. You'll see um, in verses 4 and 5, verse 5 in particular, it says, So God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration for their families, and I found genealogical records of those who had been the, been there for the first, been the first to return, and this is what I found written there. Then you have like almost 70 verses of genealogical records that we're not going to go through right now. Um, I'd encourage you to take a look through some of these chapters. But Nehemiah accounts for about 50,000 people that were back in Jerusalem. He's, he's basically saying, "This is who is with us." This is important because it's always important to know who's with you. This is why. We have membership. It's important to know who's, who's, who our members are. Um, this is, that's one of the main reasons we try to encourage people to take that step towards membership because it helps us know what we can accomplish in coming months and years. We plan our finances around our, our, our membership. We plan our events around our membership. And also we're thinking about those people that have not yet come to faith in Christ. But um, 
the whole area of you know why we do the little white cards, that's really tied to this whole principle of we, we really like to know who's with us, who attends here with us, who, who comes on a pretty regular basis, um, who our members are. It helps us in our planning. Um, you have to be careful with this whole issue of counting people, though, because one of the dangers of counting individuals is you begin to put faith in the number rather than in God. So if we were to find out, oh, we have 150 people, which is about with our kids and adults that we have, you know, it'd be easy to think, wow, we've really come a long way. You know, we started with seven of us adults, and wow, now look at where we're at. And very easily you can move into pride in this area of counting people. So as we move and as we, as we move forward as a church, it's important that we still need to keep accurate on our, on our things, but we need to keep trusting in God taking steps in faith. Sometimes the numbers will say one thing, but we sense God is, as, as leadership, we might sense God saying, you need to hire another person. You need to step out in this direction. And this is going to cost some money. But the numbers may not add up. God may want us to act in faith in those moments. So I bring that again to your attention because I really sense that in the in next year, in the coming year, that, that likely will be the case. Um, some other things. Once the wall was completed, God's word was read and explained. They had this great opportunity to bring in all of God's people and to sit and to hear God's word explained. And it hadn't been done this way in a very, very long time because they had been exiled out of their land. We don't really have time to go into all the details in Nehemiah 8. But one thing I'd like to say is they bring a man named Ezra in. Ezra was a priest. And Ezra comes in and he basically lays out the law. They hear... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they hear God's law, the first five books of the Bible, read, and it brings them to tears. The reason why it brought them to tears was because they, they hadn't heard His law, God's law explained. Many people had died since they'd been exiled out of Jerusalem. So many people were in captivity, and they were far from an organized group of God's people. And so for the first time in a very long time, they got to hear the scripture which was precious to them and to their ancestors, but it was, it was distant. It wasn't personal. Now it was personal again. And so as Ezra was sharing the law, God's people were, were weeping and crying. The big issue here was application. Application was the focus of the teaching. The Levites were brought in. The Levites were the priests, and they came in, and the Levites, their duty was to explain what the scripture meant. And this is really a critical part of spiritual leadership, is to not just to read and then to shut the book, but to explain what it means so that we can do something with it. This was Jesus' focus. That was the, the church leader's focus in the New Testament. It was to take the Scripture, explain it so people could apply it to their life and do something about it so lives could be changed. That was really the focus. Um, scriptures came to life. Last two things for you that need your notes filled in is God's Word brought about spiritual renewal and then the last thing is repentance and revival. There was this, just this celebration that went on. I, I'd really encourage you to read Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9. You read about some festivals that had pretty much gone by the wayside and that they recovered. They, had, they didn't know about. They had forgotten about. And so they implemented some things that had happened years past that brought just tremendous joy to them. Chapter 9 is just a tremendous time of repentance and, and confession because the pattern that you see in the book of Nehemiah is that as the spiritual leaders read from God's Word, 
the people responded. And I think that's what I want to close with is when God speaks, what, what is our response? Do we do anything with it? That's in Nehemiah. God would speak through these leaders and the people would respond in repentance or revival. Their hearts were renewed towards the things of God. And that is what's critical. Tonight we have a chance to celebrate the Lord's Supper and to really remember the death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And um, for us, that's a time to um, renew our commitment to Him. Just as what, at what happened in, in Nehemiah's day, we, we can have a chance to say, God, would you just... Um, clean house in my life? Would you show me the things in my life that are displeasing to you? Would you show me the relationships in my life that are not clear that I need to restore? And would you just, through that, would you just clean me out and refresh me and renew my relationship, my heart for you? Tonight we're going to have a chance to do that. Um, We'll talk more about it then. Um, But that key question, when God speaks, what am I doing in response? Does it move me to the point where I do anything differently? In Nehemiah, those people changed some patterns in their life. They still struggled, but they made some real changes. And I see some real strong parallels to just our own real lives. So uh, my encouragement is that when God speaks to you at church or you're driving down the road, that you wouldn't just dismiss that thought, but that you would actually decide, I'm going to do something with what God's saying to me today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for, again, for your word. Thank you for the history, the rich history that we find in the Bible. Um, some of the things are so, um, you know, happened so many years ago, it just seems so distant from our lives. But God, as we look closely at the issues at play, we can see how our lives lay right over the top of this stuff. God, you, you spoke so clearly in those, um, in those years so long ago so that we could learn, so that we could look at the lives of your, of your people and how they strayed and then how you restored them to your, a relationship with you. God, um, it's because you're so good to us, Lord. It's, you're so faithful that you were able to restore your people you know, t- nearly 2,500 years ago when these events unfolded, Lord. In the same way, God, you're so faithful to us, God. Though we walk away at times, though we do our own thing, Lord, you, you just allow us to be restored and renewed and to come back to you, Lord. I pray that for us as a church. pray that we would do things the way you would want things done. And personally, God, I pray for each one of us that we would respond and be sensitive to you when you speak to those um, areas in our life that, that we need to hear from you and God. Again, we thank you for this time. We continue, God, to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.